Hi, I'm John Tenuto, co-author of the book Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, The Making of the Classic Film. Hi, I'm Maria Jose Tenuto, co-author of Star Trek II, The Making of the Classic Film, and you are listening to Trek Untold. Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I am your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On today's special episode, we are chatting with a pair of authors who have a brand new Star Trek book out that demystifies a very, very famous entry in the Star Trek movie franchise. If you were to say The Wrath of Khan was the best Star Trek movie of all time, you'd find very few people arguing with you. You might have a few saying First Contact might be better, but for the most part, it's agreed upon that Wrath of Khan is one of the top-tier Star Trek films. And not just Star Trek 2, when we talk about how great this film is, this movie is one of the top sci-fi films of all time. And even beyond that, this is a genre-breaking film that everybody universally can love, even if they've never watched a single episode of Star Trek. And that's quite a feat to accomplish. For decades, The Wrath of Khan has been discussed, dissected, and analyzed from every single angle possible, and you would assume that the story about the film is pretty much done, and everything we need to know about it is out there. But according to these two authors that we're talking to today on Trek Untold, the story is still out there, and at last, now, finally, opened up for everyone to understand. Today on this episode of Trek Untold, we're talking to John and Maria Jose Tenuto, a married pair of sociology professors who have a serious deep love and knowledge of Star Trek and Star Trek history. The new book is called Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, The Making of the Classic Film, and it's coming to us courtesy of a company called Titan. And this is one of their many arms because they also have Titan merchandise. This is Titan Books or Titan Publishing. I always forget which one it is. But Titan's been around for a long time, and I've known it because of all the toys that they make because they do a great job making Star Trek toys, although they haven't done any in quite some time. But not only that, they've been doing a lot of Star Trek books. For example, several autobiographies of some Starfleet captains have been published by Titan as well. So this is like a perfect entry in their sci-fi genre books and also a really, really wonderful coffee table book with a load of new information for all you Trekkies out there. John and Maria Jose have been toiling on this book for ages, and at last it is finally here, and it really is breaking down some things we've never heard about before. The book features brand new interviews with Nicholas Myers, a lot of the cast of the film, the -the behind-the-scenes production crew of the film even. They really left no stone unturned. And that's why I had to have them on Trek Untold, because they literally wrote the untold story of The Wrath of Khan. And in my chat with them, I learned about a bunch of things I had never, ever heard about, And chances are you probably haven't either. And I don't really want to spoil anything here, but I'm actually just getting goosebumps thinking about some of the stuff they told me. And the book goes even more in depth. So yeah, this is going to be a real must-have for any serious Star Trek fan out there. And that's really not just a shameless plug. That is the honest truth. This book really has found out some stuff that no one's known about before, and your mind's going to be blown by the time we're done chatting. But as I mentioned, John and Maria Jose are also sociology professors, so we're going to talk a little bit about the sociology of Star Trek before we get into Khan. So we're covering a lot of ground here in this very diverse, very educational, and also highly entertaining episode of Trek Untold. So I hope you'll stick around and enjoy this conversation with John and Maria Jose Tenuto. 
But before we get to this week's episode, I want to thank my patrons who have been supporting this show for quite some time now. So shout out to all my Patreon supporters. And if you want to become a Patreon supporter and help out this podcast, you can do so by checking out patreon.com slash trekuntold. There are several tiers for how you can support the show financially if you're in a position to do so. But you can also just follow the Patreon page completely for free if you want to. So go ahead and check that out at patreon.com slash trekuntold. There's also going to be some links in the show notes for different stores. You can pick up things, including my Amazon affiliate store and the official Teespring Trek Untold merchandise store. But if you're not in the mood to spend any money, you can still do plenty of stuff for free, like follow us on social media. So you can check us out on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, and whatever the heck that the greatest supervillain in the world has ever seen named Elon Musk is calling Twitter these days. You can find me all at Trek Untold. If you're watching this on YouTube, please don't forget to subscribe to youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And likewise, if you're checking out this show on any of the different audio platforms we're available on, please subscribe. And if you're able to, leave a comment, leave a rating, leave a review, whatever you can do to help interact with the episode to help get more Trekkies out there to discover this podcast. Shout out to show sponsor as well, Triple Fiction Productions. You're going to hear a little more from them later on in this episode. So that's all the techno babble out of the way. Let's go ahead now and get this show started. And let's chat with John and Maria Jose Tenuto. Computer, access interview file. They're authors, they're professors, they're toy collectors, and best of all, they are Trekkies. Please welcome to Trek Untold today, John and Maria Jose Tenuto. Hi. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Or whatever time it is. Whatever time it is they're listening, who knows? Whatever, whatever's going on in this time-space continuum, I have no idea. That's up to them. But uh, yeah, very excited to talk to you guys here today, because we're going to be talking Star Trek, of course, as it's pretty clear by the name of the show. But uh, we're also going to be talking later today about your new book, which is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the making of the classic film. Uh, John, you and I have been talking, I realized, for over a year about this book. So I'm very excited that it's finally here. I'm sure you guys are too. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Here, In fact, here it is. We have a little curve. There you go. You can see it there. There we go. Oh, wow. That's that's nice. That's really nice. That's a really big book. It's uh, this is a coffee table book, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to get all into Wrath of Khan a little bit later here today, but I want to start by getting some background information about you guys. And I'd love to ask the first question that I ask all my guests, uh, John, Maria, Jose, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? You want to go first? Yeah, you go first. I'll go first. Okay. Uh, well, there was, there is no memory before Star Trek, actually. Um, but I was born when Star Trek was on. Um, uh, unfortunately, at the tail end of it. But I grew up with it. Um, you know, certainly it was always on TV. It was, uh, I, I was the perfect age for the animated show. Um, I really came to it as a, a fan, a, a, a person who became, you know, identified, identified as a fan and, and thought of myself as a fan when I saw Wrath of Khan. So that, that's what, um, really swept me into the whole world of it as a, as a daily, uh, part of my life. Uh, but I had had it before, you know, I had had the Mego playset and, uh, and things like that. So I was certainly very aware of it. And, uh, and I had liked it cause I'd liked science fiction. I'd like Planet of the Apes and, uh, things like that. So, um, uh, my brothers in fact used to play with my Planet of the Apes toys and my Star Trek, my, uh, Mego toys and have them meet each other. And I would be, I would be upset about that because that was crossing universes. So that's where I was. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really Wrath of Khan that, that brought me, uh, seeing it with my dad on opening night um, at the Esquire Theater in Chicago. So that's really what 
And I didn't know it was opening night. I didn't know it was opening night. I my I was going away for the summer for you know like a summer camp. My parents had said pick something for us to do together before you go, and so I picked ET with my mom, uh, and I had picked uh, Star Trek Two with my dad, and uh, I, it just happened to be opening night. And what a great night to go because the energy there. Uh, in the theater and with the with the fellow, I mean that's where I realized that there was a community of people and fans and a whole world around Star Trek. It wasn't just you know a television show or like Planet of the Apes or things like that. So then um, that was great. It was a great, it's a great memory to have with my dad. You know, I, I remember my dad very much. I remember my dad laughing at the uh, I, you know can I cook or can't I line uh, in the film, and um, it's just a nice memory of my father, who's, who my, my parent, my, both my parents are gone, so. Um, uh, so that was my introduction. Um, so I knew about Star Trek growing up because my brother would have on Star Trek, the next generation. So I knew it in passing. I was familiar with, you know, Patrick Stewart playing a card, but I never really sat down and watched it. Um, it wasn't until I was, um, John and I were dating. I was working on my graduate paper and I would work on the paper in one room and he would catch up on deep space nine in the other room. And I would hear it and I would hear like strange words like power rates. And uh, I would poke my head out like, what is this? It sounds like, you know, foreign language. And I would just, I'd be curious and I'd catch little clips and um, I was, I was intrigued. And he, what was the first one he showed me? Four? Star Trek Four? Uh, Star Trek Four, which is yeah. the proper. He has a specific order that he recommends. The film. Introduction film. Yeah. When you're, when you're showing it to someone who's never watched star trek um so we watched star trek four then two mm-hmm. right so two and then maybe what six then then three okay. three yeah then six and then um the first show we watched was deep space nine um but i was as soon as i started watching i was hooked and then i watched all of everything every show every you know every episode every series um so i was hooked right away when we when we got married and uh, when they had asked, we were sitting down with a DJ. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they even have DJs at weddings anymore, but we, we had a DJ at our wedding, and uh, he uh, he asked what we wanted to walk into, and Mary Jo said the Voyager theme. So that's when he knew. That's I when was. I knew I she had she had she had she had come into the group. Yeah, I was converted. And John, I do have to ask officially: what is the proper order to watch the movies? What's the best way oh, for yeah. a newbie to check them out? Well, I think for a new person, I mean, I'm talking about somebody who really just has no um, conception of Star Trek and you're and you want to start with the movies rather than the TV shows. You know, if I was doing the TV shows, I would just go in order. You know, I would go in the order in which they and with the order in which they were they were received. I think if you're if you're introducing someone who's brand new uh, and even maybe even a little hesitant about Star Trek, um, I think Star Trek four is a really great film to start with. Um, because it's so it's set in our you know obviously in our own time um it, it's it's a story i think you can show to anybody of any age it's a story that's understandable and relatable the time travel isn't confusing um and then and then i would go into two because i think two is the best of the film not that there there's no bad star trek right it's like pizza some pizza might be better than other pizza but it's all good because it's pizza uh there's no such thing as bad pizza so but I would I would then say do two and three. Um, then they had saw four, so they had sort of seen the the collective there, the the, the sort of tr- the, the trilogy. And then I would say six, just because that sort of follows more 
four than five does. Five is a five is sort of standalone, uh, like one is. And then I would show them one, and then I would show them the next gen in, in order. Um, I think in terms of that, and not now that there was no Kelvin. That we we've been married for twenty five years, so there was no Kelvin universe back then. Um, you know, I don't know where I would put have put that, uh, but probably I would have put that after the next gen movies. So to, to to have a better understanding of the Romulans and and things like that, that I think you get from next gen. Now you both are sociologists, and uh, that really is a big part of what this conversation is going to be about today as well. Uh, and for you, Maria Jose, I'd like to know what drew you down that path to want to go into sociology. And for you, John, I'm kind of curious: did Star Trek play a role in that? I got into sociology because I found out I was a, I was going to be a business major in college. So I chose DePaul because it was one bus um, straight down because we lived in Chicago. Um, it was probably like a 20, 30 minute bus ride. I chose that school because the high school I went to was so far, I had to take three buses to get there. It was like an hour and a half trip. And I chose that high school because they had a gymnastics program. So that's how my life is. Like, you know, there's one thing I want. And so I make my choice based on that. So I wanted a short ride to school. So I chose DePaul and I chose, um, I was going to be a business major. But then I found out that the business classes were downtown and that would mean I'd have to take a bus and a train. And I was like, no, I'm done with a long commute. So um, my first semester, uh, I took a sociology class and the first day I liked it so much, I declared sociology my major and I got a graduate degree in it because I liked sociology in school so much, I didn't want it to end. So I got a graduate degree and when I finished graduate school, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was going to do cake decorating because I liked cake decorating. And I took a professional cake decorating course. And then John gets a job um, teaching uh, sociology at the College of Lake County, which is we're out here in Lake County. And the dean asks, oh, do you know someone? You know, because they're looking for people to teach. Um, and so he's like, oh, yeah, my fiance just got her graduate degree. And he comes home. He tells me that, like, you should go interview for this position. And I had no intention of teaching. I wasn't really going to even use my degree. And um, anyway, I went and I got the job and I started teaching right away. I, he threw me into three classes and I loved it right away. So here I am 25 years later. Well, that sounds like that. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds so uh, uh, But um Mine's a little more romantic, I think, than that. Uh, more than the bus ran that way. <laughs> the bus went that direction in my life. I'm a weird person. I uh, It was actually um, the television show Welcome Back, Cotter, if anybody remembers that. Uh, John Travolta's first big uh, show um, that uh, is still a huge part of my life. But I um, I watched that. I was... Um, it was on when I was a kid. Uh, I was born in the late sixties. So I was, I was, you know, a, a set of five, six years old when that show was on. And I loved, uh, the way he taught on that show. For those who are unfamiliar, it's a show about a, a teacher and his students. And he, and he, uh, he, he loved his students. He made it fun to learn. Um, and I was like, why is, you know, I, I think it's very similar. Anybody grew up with the Brady Bunch. You were kind of like, I wish my family did these kinds of exciting things, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I was like, oh, I wish my, 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 my teachers were like this. And uh, he was a social studies teacher. 
So that built very early into me a, a, a love of social studies um, and uh, sociology. Um, I think, however, what you asked about Star Trek is very true because um, very, very early in my life, um, I loved uh, 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 Planet of the Apes. I grew up with that. Uh, I loved Star Trek. Of course, when Star Wars came along, the whole world changed. Um, and Star Trek and science, fi- Star Trek and sci- Star Trek science fiction in general and sociology are um, really the same thing. Um, a good science fiction is sociology. It's a commentary on either now or the future. Um, the difference, of course, is sociology uses the scientific method to, you know, try to talk about groups and and uh, and, and explain uh, social phenomenon and social institutions. But it's really got the same goal, right? The, the goal of science fiction, good science fiction. I don't mean good. I mean, like it's good. I mean, just a classic what we mean by science fiction. It is meant to be a commentary on on society, and and deals with the same topics: uh, race, religion, war, technology, politics, uh, music. Uh, maybe I, I, we haven't seen today's episode of uh, Strange New Worlds yet, but you know, music has always been a part of Star Trek, um, and it comments on these social elements. And so, I, I think that may be why I don't know whether I liked sociology because I liked that element of science fiction, but I, I understood when I was a kid, I, I, I got, I, I liked Planet of the Apes for two reasons. It, it had apes that talk, which really other than that, what, what do you need? But um, I understood that it was about war and, and, and I, I, I got that it was about race, you know, and I, I understood that. I didn't understand it deeply or profoundly. I still don't, but, but I, I, I got that there was a, there was a moral there. You know, I got that it was a fairy tale and that there, you were supposed to take a moral away from it. And um, so I think that that it's very easy to put science fiction and sociology together. And I think that the two, uh, for me, have always been the same thing. So John, that actually is pretty interesting also. And you, you kind of gave a little bit of a definition of what sociology is. But for folks like me who are not as well versed in that area and for plenty of my listeners also who might not know it, uh, do you mind going a little bit more in depth about what sociology actually is and what that entails? Sociology is, it's a science, sociology. Um, it, it depends on the same scientific method that you would use in the natural sciences, um, except that its focus is on studying, uh, our lives within groups, uh, primarily, um, uh, our life within institutions and the, and the things that we use, um, within those institutions. So a sociologist would study, um, Family, media, uh, government, uh, education, and these institutions that we build uh, and how we group ourselves within those groups. But it might also study, um, you know, religion uh, or a religion. Um, it might study uh, the effect of the artifacts that we have, like uh, social media, um, technology. Um, it's, it's really there as long as two or more people are together. Uh, you can study it from a sociological point of view. Uh, the difference between psychology and sociology is that psychology is a li- leans a little more to the biological model. Uh, we, le- we lean more to the nurture, you know, the nature-nurture debates. We lean more towards nurture um, in, in pure sociological. I mean, there are 
you can do sociobiology. I mean, there's there's all these these sub areas of the psychology tends to be more interested in the individual person. Uh, now they may be interested in how that individual person relates to other people, but in on a, in a pure sense, psychology is about the individual, and in a ideal or pure sense, a sociology is about the group. So a sociologist never cares what you make. They may ask you how much you make, but they what they want to do is add up what you make with what every other Star Trek fan makes and see do Star Trek fans make more money than our non-Star Trek fans, you know, that kind of thing. It, it's it's about our lives within uh, the groups that we have and whether they're small groups and you can do micro sociology, which is the type what we call interactionist theory, um, or you do macro level sociology, which is more like, um, you know, war institutions, large scale kind of, uh, uh, of issues. Um, but what it, really what a sociologist does is it takes a look at where we live our lives. We Most of us live our lives in groups, work groups, family groups, religion groups, uh, online communities, um, fan groups. So a sociologist would have a hell of a lot to say. Today is the beginning of the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas. Uh, when we're recording this, uh, they would have a hell of a lot to say about the Star Trek convention because lots of interesting groups are there. Uh, besides the big group, right? There's a, there's the big group of Star Trek fans, but there's also cosplayers, which are different than non-cosplayers. There's uh, people who are Berman era fans when there are also people that are more, you know, Calvin universe or, or Kurtzman verse, whatever, we don't have a name for it yet, but um, the, the more modern TV shows, there are people who like both, you know, there's, there's there's different occupations to study at the convention, people who work there, the actors, the directors, um, and then the occupations of all the fans. Uh, there, there's just a lot of different things you could study at, a, at a, like what goes on at a Star Trek convention. How is it similar than a sports convention, than a than a uh, than a American Sociological Association convention, than a plumbers convention? Um, what similarities are there? What differences are there? Are there differences at a Star Wars convention than a Star Trek convention? Those are questions that a sociologist might ask. There's two levels of analysis, two ways of viewing something. So if you were going to study crime, for example, you could look at these broad patterns like um, race, sex, class, education, um, region of the country. Um, and so that gives you kind of these broad patterns to crime. But then you can look at a micro level um, analysis and you can look at theories that cover like what was the relationship between or the interaction between the offender and the victim on the day of the crime, like what took place. So you can look at it two different ways. And that's something that I enjoy about sociology. It covers everything under the sun. So you can never be bored with it. And there's just so many theories. Yeah, that's definitely the thing is like I was trying to like look into it and get a little bit more of an understanding of what sociology is, but it feels like it is such a broad umbrella of what it can be. So uh, maybe for the sake of our listeners and also for me, because I could definitely use this here, uh, let's try and kind of focus it a little bit more and put a microscope under it in terms of Star Trek. I know this is a uh, this is a thing that both of you guys do quite a lot. You do lectures about this. You've done it at Star Trek Las Vegas, I believe, also. Uh, so how do we relate Star Trek to sociology? Well, I think with Star Trek, uh, well, with anything uh, like that, but certainly with Star Trek, you can do either um, you could either do the sociology of Star Trek 
or you could do the sociology through Star Trek. So, I mean, I, I think there's a difference. So they can doing the season, so- why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to do intertextual, extratextual, and then I realized I don't want to go. Uh, but um, you could look at the sociology messages within Star Trek itself. So what last week on uh, Strange New Worlds, they dealt with war. Uh, they've dealt with um, with um, uh, memory uh, this season. Uh, they dealt with um, uh, over overpopulation on the original series. Uh, what were you going to say? Oh, loss. Loss. Yeah, that's been a big theme this year on Strange New Worlds. Loss and connection. Um, if you go back to the original show, they dealt with racism and they dealt with um, overpopulation. They dealt with, uh, at the time, the Vietnam War in particular, uh, they dealt with that. Um, Next Generation dealt with um, globalization through the Borg. Right. The Borg are scary because that's globalization. That's what that's why they were created. It's it's during that era, you know, um, uh, and, and the fears people had of a, of a world where we were all linked together technologically. And that's all beginning back then. Uh, uh, you know, you've got um, a wonderful episode in Next Generation that deals with language, Darmok. Right. Which is just one of the great episodes of Star Trek. Um uh, you know, Voyager deals with uh, with um, you know the uh, um, healthcare um, in the HMO episode that they had, the evil HMO company episode that they had. Um, and so, Star Trek has within it, you know, all the shows have have uh, uh, sociological messages within them, themes within them. Um, and so, uh, you could look at Star Trek and study. You could use it as a way to understand the real the real world, R E A L through the real world R E E L right through the through the fake world of Star Trek, although it's real to us. Um, the fake world of Star Trek, you could use that to understand real world issues. So that's sort of you know that's the sociology through Star Trek, but you could also do the sociology of Star Trek, which is what is the real world effect of Star Trek. So to study things like Star Trek fans. Um, how has Star Trek influenced people? How has it influenced technology? Uh, MP3s were created because of Star Trek. The inspiration for MP3s came for Star Trek. Uh, we often hear about the cell phone, um, you know, and Martin Cooper being influenced by Star Trek. Um, uh, so there's real world technologies. I mean, I don't think Steve Jobs called the iPad the iPad because that's all they could think of, right? I mean, it's it existed on Star Trek. It was called Pad. I mean, it you know, uh, and it looks the same, right? I mean, it's the same thing. You know, we could talk about the technological effects of Star Trek, the social effects of Star Trek, um, uh, the inspirational effects of Star Trek, and and look at how 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 that works. We we spend a lot of time studying the making of it. Um, because we're very interested in what happens when when artists come together i also have a degree in humanities for, for whatever that's worth but i have a degree in that's so a, a, a nice combination i think of sociology and humanities but it's taking a look at what how artists and technicians when they come together how do they how do they produce star trek despite what always exists uh, budget limitations time limitations Technology limitations, um, censorship, whether that's from the uh, st- like the studio side of things, 
um, in the days of the early Star Trek, or whether it's censorship in terms of the rules of Star Trek, what they used to call the Roddenberry box, right? Um, and, and the rules that Roddenberry had laid down uh, for, for Star Trek. Uh, so um, we're very interested in that. And, 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 and what we like to do is we like to take we like to have the credits come alive. It, it, it irritates the hell out of me that that um, they fast forward credits, or 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 or, or you, you can shove it, off to the side. shove it off to the side, or you can skip credits because these are the people, all of them, not just the not just the actors, uh, and maybe in some ways, you know, as important or more important than actors sometimes are the people behind the scenes who make it possible for the actors to do what they do um, and for us as fans to enjoy it. And it, 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 we, we live in a society now where credits don't mean anything, right? It, it's, it's, it's uh, not our most serious problem, but we, we certainly live in a society where we, we, where the whole streaming world is geared around skipping credits. And what we want people to do is to be able to watch the credits of, of Star Trek two and go, Oh, I know what that person did. I know what that person did. I know who that person is. Um, and to say beyond only, not only the actors who of course make a very important contribution, but, but also cinematographers and special effects artists and, um, designers and carpenters and gaffers. And, and that was really in the spirit of how we wrote the book was we wanted to focus on, um, everyone's contributions to it and, and how, um, amazingly you can come up with a piece of, genuine art um or or even just a really entertaining movie or television show um and yet people were able to do it despite whatever limitations they faced well i want to take it like you said from the real world to the real world for a second here and uh, again just kind of even putting the microscope down even further into the lens of star trek i'd like to talk i guess about who are maybe the best ambassadors for the ideas of sociology and the exploration of sociology because to me it feels like Spock and Data really stand out as those types of characters. Uh, Maria Jose, can you kind of elucidate a little bit more on like how those two characters especially really, really relate to the pursuits of sociology? Well, especially because they're outsiders. Um, you know, Spock serving on a starship, and he's surrounded by humans. Um, and so he's an outsider looking in. Um, same thing with Data, you know, being an android wanting to be human. Um, so they're great um, at, at doing that. Um, and then we can see their, how they're struggling or uh, what challenges they have. And um, one of the great episodes, that I, one of the earliest episodes I show students, I don't show them the whole episode, but I show them um, clips from the enemy within. So Kirk, because of the transporter, um, uh, accident. He's split into two. There's the good Kirk and the evil Kirk. And at first, you know, he's horrified by his evil side and doesn't want to take him back. So he's struggling with this idea that this, this is the ugly side of me. I don't like it. I don't want it. Um, and then Spock makes a comment about, you know, what we have here is, you know, we can study what makes a person good, what makes a person evil. Um, and I use this for a class um, called, it's on deviant behavior. And um, I think the message that you have here is that um, you need both sides. Um, so there might be aspects about yourself that you don't like, but it makes you who you are. And so for Kirk, that makes him a very strong captain um, because his good side, he can't make command decisions, you know, that might cost somebody their life. Um, but that 
darker evil side can do that. Um, so Spock tells him like, look, you need that. You need to be combined. You know, this, this side makes you who you are. And McCoy also has a good role in that because he points out, you know, it's, it's not ugly, it's human. And so I think that's a good message for how we as humans, like we don't have to tamper. Um, you know, if you think about um, in the past, lobotomies, um, uh, forced sterilization of um, a whole swaths of people, um, especially um, people who were considered mentally ill, um, forced sterilization, eugenics, um, that we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't tamper with ourselves that you could be getting rid of some of the good when you're getting rid of what you think is the bad. It's kind of like the hygiene hypothesis, the idea that you need exposure to germs to uh, for the to have a strong immune system. And so you need the bad to have the good. Um, so um, I, I like to show him that. And then I show him a clip. Um, it's actually an interview with Ricardo Montalban on, on of all things QVC. And he's asked by Bob Bowersox what it's like to play the villain. And I love his answer because he says, I don't play a villain. I play a man who, because of circumstances, circumstances have brought him to this point where he does villainous things. So the idea is that Khan doesn't see himself as evil. Khan sees himself as righteous um, for going after Kirk. And um, it's a good example of how people who are deviant don't go around thinking I'm a deviant person. They don't go around thinking I'm an evil person. They feel justified in what they're doing. Um, so I like to use Star Trek as uh, a great jumping off point for discussions in class. And those are those are two examples I show very early on, like the first week or two. Yeah, I, I think um, I think Matthew, your your that idea, and then and Mary Jo used the word outsider, which I think mm -hmm. is a great is a great word. That th those are always the characters because they can do a commentary on on they they can be the stand you know it's like stand up comedians yeah. right um, um, I always ask my students at the start of the semester to become one of three things they could either be Nemo from Finding Nemo and they need to jump out of the tank because you can't you can't be swimming along and study what you're swimming along necessarily it's a lot it's more objective to be outside the tank you're supposed to like Nemo jumps outside the tank to jump outside the tank and to see the tank and then, um, or to be Neo from the matrix, which he does the same thing, right? He takes a pill and he, 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 he sees the world for the way it really is because a sociologist can't be a participant. Now you may do participant observation and that kind of, but a sociologist is supposed to be an outsider. And the third example I give him is be somebody like, you know, Lenny Bruce or, or, um, you know, uh, Mencia or Brian Regan or Jerry Seinfeld or, or you know, uh, Richard Pryor, be, be a stand-up comedian because stand-up comedians, the, we usually laugh because they're pointing out things that we should have recognized, but we're swimming along in those waters and we don't recognize. And I think in Star Trek, those characters like Spock um, in the original show, uh, uh, Data and Next Generation on Voyager, it was probably the doctor, I would argue, be the character. Um, on uh, Deep Space Nine, it was Odo, um, uh, and on Enterprise, it was to, I think pr primarily to Paul and Phlox a little bit. They kind of shared duties there, maybe Phlox a little more. Um, and then the show went on 
more to Paul. But um, certainly on those shows, the original the sort of Berman era, Roddenberry era Star Trek, there was that concept of having an outsider who could make commentary on humanity. Um, and, you know, I guess I would throw Quark in there, too. I think Quark and Odo functioned in those ways, functioned in those ways where they would make commentary on on what what humanity was about. And I, and, I, and that's that's just, that's the function of a sociologist. I even put that in my um, an announcement to students at the start of the semester um, that I hope that they'll be like Spock and will approach things in a very curious way, wanting to understand, um, wanting to understand all the theories that we're going to cover. We look at it kind of it's like a buffet. You know, there's going to be some things that you might like, some things you don't like, but to try to have that kind of like open openness to just want to, you know, explore what it is. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it or accept it, but just look at it and try to understand what that idea is saying. And I, and I think that's one of the big differences between Spock on the original Star Trek, the Leonard Nimoy version of Spock, um, and the newer version of Spock, the Ethan Peck version of Spock. Is that Spock, maybe because they're playing it because he's so young, uh, on that show, I guess uh, he does not make that kind of commentary very frequently. Once in a while, but he he doesn't have the assuredness of older Spock yet. You know, he doesn't have a little bit of that that um, experience, so as to be able to sort of sit back and say, "Okay, what?" Because yeah, I think when we're younger, we're a little more like, "Well, my idea is the right idea, right?" Like my my way of life is the right. Because that's we under, you understand that you don't have the. But as you get older, you realize you don't know anything. Uh, really, um, all you have is wisdom, which isn't, which is different than, you know, and usually wisdom just means patience. Um, uh, so I think that's an interesting dynamic because I was trying to think of what are on discovery, who's the outsider. And that's a little hard to say. Saru, maybe. Uh, but then they, but then they took away what made Saru very different, right? Which was the fear, the fear, the fear aspect of the character. Um, and strange new worlds, I, Una, Una, maybe? I mean, I'd, I'd argue that maybe on Discovery, they're kind of all almost the outsiders. That, that was kind of like a little bit of the exploration of what the show was last season, especially with them trying to come to terms with many of their own emotions and that kind of thing. So they're all kind of feeling outside in different ways. Um, yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking the same thing now. It's like, it, it's it's pretty big, isn't it? <laughs> on Disco, in Disco. So I know that all three of us are toy and merchandise collectors as well. And I do want to put that under the lens of sociology as well. Now, I've seen you guys appear on The Toys That Made Us, and that's one of my favorite shows also. I'm waiting for more episodes. Uh, Ryan Volkweiss, get on that, please. But uh, something that I read you guys had said, uh, I don't know if it was on the show or maybe it was in an article, but I believe it was in relation to G.I. Joe's. And the idea of it was, was essentially the gendering of action figures and the gendering of toys. And I feel like that is a very sociological construct to talk about in the world of toy collecting. So uh, I'd love if you guys can kind of break down what that means. Uh, and how that relates to a property like Star Trek, which I feel has been, for the most part, really fairly gender neutral, even if the merchandise didn't always lean that way. You wanna? Um, well, when you brought up G.I. Joe, it's great. It's fun to look at over time how the action figure has changed to reflect the standard of beauty at the time. So you can see that he gets more buff, he gets more muscular. And when you look at what's going on in the culture, when you look at what popular cultures popular, um, you'll see that change in, in, in physique. So same thing happened with Star Wars figures. If you look at the original Star Wars figures, you look at Luke, you look at Leia and Han, they're slim. And then when you look at 
it's power of the force, correct? Power of the force line in the 1990s, you see them like really muscular and Leia as well. You look at her, her biceps, her quadriceps, she's, she's muscular. And then what's going on in the culture, you've got, um, especially the eighties, Rambo and Rocky, um, and Schwarzenegger. And you've got, um, I used to watch, it was called WWF wrestling. Um, so, and then they had glow, gorgeous ladies of wrestling. So you had wrestling was very popular. Um, He-Man was popular. Um, so you see those characters are reflecting that. They made the action figures more muscular to reflect what's going on in popular culture. So um, certainly you can see from the toy line um, changes in the culture, um, what we consider to be attractive, what is considered um, desirable. When, when you're talking about toys, toys are the main mechanism by which kids learn, right? So the, one of the worst things we do is take away the toys in school. So, I, you know, kids are, every kid is different, of course, but kids, kids don't necessarily mind. They might mind the idea of going to school till they see there's all these toys in this classroom when they're, you know, when they go to preschool or, or, or whatever. But then, you know, once you start getting to third grade or fourth grade, they start removing all that, you know, they start removing the toys from the classroom and the, and that element from the classroom. And so then it becomes a job and school becomes, you know, something else. Kids learn through their toys. We know that from, from theories as, you know, Jean Piaget, but any parent knows that, right? You're the, the kids play with toys. It's also important when kids play with toys because it's, um, it's not only a socialization experience, it's a, it, it's really one of the few places they have any control, right? So, a kid's told when to get up, got to go to school. Here's what you're eating. Maybe they might be told what to wear, you know. Um, but when I'm playing with my Star Wars toys or my Planet of the Apes toys when I'm a little kid, I get to decide what happens to those characters. I, I am, I'm the author. I'm the director. I'm the creator of the universe of that, those, those figures. And, um, so there's a lot of creativity that goes into that and, a lot of attachments. So toys are, you know, there's a reason you, you, you can go back to Egypt and there's toys uh, and they look like toys. They look like we, we would recognize them and you go, that's a doll. It's not as they're not 3D rendered, you know, uh, laser etched uh, uh, dolls, but they're dolls. And there's a reason that n- nearly every society has toys. Um, and, and part of it is that's the window for the child to the adult world. And so even if it's something fa- now you can play something practical like um uh easy bake ovens and so you're teaching a kid how to cook but you even if you're playing something fantastic you're learning values so when you when you play Kirk versus Crooge with your playmates action figures you're learning what a good person is in our society defined in our society versus what a bad person is in our society um, you're learning values, and, and that includes gender roles, right? Um, certainly part of that. Um, you know, Star Trek's toy history is really just the fastest, in and of itself, is a fascinating um, history. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's really one of the windows that we know that Star Trek is back in the 1970s. The the Mego toy line uh, is an enormously, you know, well received uh, money making line the 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 line that's based mostly on the animated show at least inspired by the animated show um and that's one of the that's one of the keys that people say oh this this thing is not a you know this is not a dead franchise this is not the only time that's happened in the 70s lone ranger toys 
someone I still don't know the explanation for that. But Lone Ranger Toys by Gabriel were huge sellers. And that was a show that hadn't been on. And I mean, there was an animated thing, but I mean, it wasn't very popular. And yet that then that spawned a, a Lone Ranger film in the late 1970s. Um, and so that's, you know, that's part of the reason Star Trek came back when, when they see the sales of books and toys and, uh, and so on. Um, but, you know, it's nice. Star Trek has sort of always had uh, really toys for everybody and, and, and collectibles at various price points, you know. You can buy a $30,000 enterprise if you want to, or you could buy a $1.99 enterprise if you want to, you know, so it's kind of nice. And, you know, the very, very early Mego line had, you know, Uhura in it, which was unusual to include a a female character in what would they conceptualized as a boy's toy line. Um, And I think an important, you know, it's it's, within a mainstream toy line, they have an African-American female action figure. that was a big deal, you know, and, and had to be specially made. It wasn't like they could use a mold from, you know, you could use Spock's body on, you know, McCoy's body and you just had to change the head. It, it took an expense to do that. Um, and I think that says something about Star Trek fans and what they're receptive about um, and Star Trek sort of place with, with, with those issues. Now, you two have a pretty amazing collection of Star Trek stuff. I, I know right now as we're doing this interview, you're in the process of a move. So unfortunately, we can't look at it all. But. Uh, can you guys just tell us, let's say maybe um, about some of the more odd things you guys have in your collection? My favorite is the marshmallow dispenser. Yes. Craft. I love anything that is um, unique. I love things that are practical, too. So when you can combine your love of a franchise with something practical that you can use in your everyday life, I love that. So um, one of the small things I have here are Star Trek paper clips. So why use just boring paper clips when you can have so the Enterprise and uh, the Delta Shield? That's so amazing. Things like that, like um, you know, the Star Trek cookie cutters, um, Star Trek. We had the used to have the cookie jars above our um, refrigerator. So I love where you can just bring in um, you know elements of things you love just in your regular daily life that you could have scattered around your house so it's not like we have it only in one room it's just like everywhere you know we have um you know i, I still have my original mego play set from the 70s so that's nice fun this is special to me um and my original figures you know we 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 have we, we like to collect as mary joe said little oddball kinds of things you know um in addition to the action figures and and and, and you know that 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 sort of thing playmates is my one of my my loves, uh, the, the original Playmate line, which I thought was really well, really, really well done. And I loved how, you know, it was very different than Star. I also collect Star Wars, too. We, we do both. But, you know, the problem with Star Wars lines is you get Luke with only slight differences. But Playmates didn't do that. When you got your eight or nine Kirks, they were all completely different. Um, you know, they were, he was in his, uh, a piece of the action outfit and one figure he was in, uh, his, uh, where no man has gone before outfit. I mean, they were always very rarely did they ever do the same figure, but only a little bit different. Um, and so they had a really wonderful expansive line. So did diamond select toys. They, they did really great, uh, a little more like for collectors, I think, than for, for playing with, they were a little heavier, bigger seven inches, most of them. Um, but that was a very diverse lines. Yeah. And a great diverse line. You know, they, they gave us figures, uh, Nurse Agawa. 
I mean, who had never existed before. I mean, as, as a figure. So um, we like collecting that. Um, but I like collecting, um, you know, the, the lunch boxes, uh, uh, <laughs> food items. Uh, that's a big thing for us. So um, uh, difficult to keep, but we take pictures of them. So, uh, you know, we we ate a lot of Kellogg Ego waffles when Star Trek 2009 came out because they had a, a Ego waffles with Star Trek on them and we wanted to get one of every one. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't keep them. I guess you probably could sh- put shellac on it. I said, I don't know what the science of that would be. Um, but I like collecting like um, soda, anything that has to do with soda. So glasses. Um, really, some of my favorite collectibles are the Star Trek Three Taco Bell glasses, because I remember riding my bike to Taco Bell and saving up the seventy nine cents or whatever it was to get a soda, so I could get the glass. And what was cool is the the glasses came out before the film, and one of the glasses has the destruction of the Enterprise on it. So you were spoiled uh, by the Taco Bell glasses, you know. Um, uh, so I like we we like things like that, you know. Um, uh, not really, we don't have a lot of high end, you know, uh, very expensive pieces, things like that. And then we love collecting vinyl too. So I think I have almost all the, any Star Trek and, and, or actor, you know, produced vinyl, um, that exists. Uh, I, I love that. It, it, and one of my favorites is the Wrath of Khan had a, a single, they released a single. So it's a seven, you know, a seven inch, uh, 45 record, small one that they sent to radio stations to play the Star Trek two theme, uh, which seems more appropriate for Star Trek three. Cause they did like a disco <laughs> type of thing with that. Um, but uh, they did that with Star Trek two. So um, I love stuff like that. Trek untold will return momentarily. Trek untold is sponsored by triple fiction productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. 
Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing? Whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together, how they got that great sound quality, what gear they use, how much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler, and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades, speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, and most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's Toys and Tech of the Trade with some assembly required. All right. So John, Maria, Jose, let's start talking about your new book here, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, The Making of the Classic Film. And this seems like an obvious question here. And, and there's the book one more time, which looks beautiful, by the way. It looks really great. Uh, never see the back. That's the first showing of the back there, right there. Oh, that looks awesome. Everybody's seen the back. So there you go. Yeah, really nice. And so, you know, I think this is kind of like an obvious question here, uh, which you know, I want to ask you guys, like, why write the book in the first place? But I think the nuance that I want to kind of get here with you guys is, you know, this is a topic that has been covered so heavily already by a lot of other authors, by videos, by documentarians. And I don't say this as a negative. I say it from the perspective of, so many folks kind of tend to stop dead in the tracks with an idea if they think someone's already done it. But you guys had this idea. You kept going forward. So what made you say that you can do this and contribute something different or never before seen to the Star Trek universe? One of the themes that we have is the idea that art thrives on limitations. And so um, I, one of the things I'm so impressed with is the amount of attention and planning that was put into this before they even started shooting. Um, so Nicholas Meyer and Gain Rusher would spend time, like hours, going through, walking through, um, deciding what they were going to do shot for shot, how they were going to do it before even starting. So um, I think Nicholas Meyer um, said it like before the meter was running in terms of money and time, they are already planned so that they knew what they were doing and they didn't have to like change something on the fly or change something later because that would cost money. Um, you know, today we hear about shows having to do or movies having to do reshoots and um, having to delay something. And here Nicholas Meyer in, in such a short time frame, you know, um, with the script and um, getting ready for production, just putting so much thought and planning into it so that it would go well. That I'm so impressed with that. We approached the book, I think, differently. Um, we approached it as a scientific endeavor. In other words, um, we we didn't believe anything that we had been told before. 
um, because there are also a lot of myths about Star Trek II. Uh, one of the myths that's even, I mean, it's in official things at the time, is that it was never a television movie. And never, never. And you hear people say it today. It was never a television movie. And they're on documentaries. It's never a television movie. It was a television movie. We have the memos um, from, you know, we, 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 we didn't say anything in the book unless we had the proof. And so we were very lucky and fortunate, um, both because of the kindness of fellow fans. We were able to get a hold of every version of the script that ever existed. Um, we also had access to every memo that is known to exist. I mean, there may be some that people have privately that aren't in collections, but, and so uh, we really approach this as a, let's strip everything away. There's never been a making of book before. And we're going to start this from scratch. Of course there has been, there was a book made at the time by Alan Asherman, uh, a really wonderful book, Star Trek II, um, the making of the film. And, uh, uh, there's a really great Cinefantastique article that was done by Kay Anderson that was amazingly just beautiful um, uh, a piece of, uh, of journalism and, and research. Um, so we, we relied on the, the things that had been done before that were done well, uh, and we rejected the things that were, you know, either, I would say, PR-ish. Um, um, and we also wanted to, we, we felt we needed to tell stories that had never been told before. So we tell the story of the Khan baby in here that's never been told in its full story before. Um, who is the Khan baby? Why was the Khan baby actually edited out of the film? Um, it, was it Khan's kid? Um, was Yalcom Khan's kid? Um, uh, the novelization has a very fascinating story because there was concerns about releasing the novel. Um, because it would reveal the ending. Um, and so we, we, there were lots and lots. We figured if we went through here and, and we were going through all this material going, ooh, right? So we found out what happened to Khan's wig. Khan's wig makes another appearance in another thing, not Star Trek related, but Nicholas Meyer related. Um, and so anything where we were like, ooh, wow, that's fascinating. We, we figured fellow fans would love to know about that. So we... I, well, just to interject, another common question we get is, was Ricardo Montalban's chest real? It's real. We explain. We explain why it's real. We have the definitive proof that it's real. Um, and we were also really fortunate. We 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 did interviews uh, with Nick Meyer, of course, was very generous with his time. Um, Laura Banks, who was on set with Ricardo Montalban every time Ricardo really in every scene Ricardo is in, Laura is there. Yep. So she was a wonderful it's on the show resource. as well. In fact, yeah, yeah, a, a really wonderful resource for for the for the reliant, you know, the the whole reliant world and what that was like filming that. Um, uh, we also got to talk with Ken Ralston, which was wonderful, um, and to to hear about the interviews, uh, what it was like to do the effects during those days. I mean, and Ken's just a great person, let alone uh, a genius, uh, just a really real genius. Um, but we also talked with people uh, like Steve Sansweet, who f Star Wars fans may know, who plays a role in the Star Trek II story. Um, we spoke with Leonard Nimoy's family, with uh, Julie Nimoy contributed to the book. She was on set. Uh, she was uh, uh, Leonard's assistant uh, and a production assistant during the show, uh, during Star Trek II. She was there when they filmed the death sequence. 
Um, she was the only one with her father in the car back and forth every day making Star Trek II. Uh, so she gave us some really wonderful insights, um, as did um, uh, Ricardo Montalban's family. We, we, uh, she passed away the day after she contributed to the book. Uh, a wonderful woman named Anita Montalban, who was one of Ricardo's daughters. Um, the Montalban family is doing a great deal to keep his legacy uh, and his activism uh, alive. And uh, she told us details no one knew, no one knows about Ricardo and his relationship with Khan. And so um, we really think there's an awful lot in the book that because we approached it as nothing, nothing is sacred. There is no, there is there, there, you know, we we need to have, there needs to be a memo. There needs to be an interview. There needs to be something where we can hook this onto before we state it in the book. Um, And we tried to tell stories that weren't told before. So each chapter deals with a different aspect of the production. Uh, so there's a chapter on the cinematography, a chapter on stunts, a chapter on hairdressing uh, and makeup, um, uh, wardrobe. wardrobe. Um, and there's a lot in here of the script. So fans for the first time will be able to read the actual script pages are in here um, of the original death scenes as they progressed, as they changed from uh, Soward's version of it through Nicholas Meyer's version of it. Um, and fans have never really been able to see that before, um, like that most fans. So, um, we're really excited. We think it's got a lot in there that, 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 um, fellow fans had never seen before. And as Mary Jo said, we were, you know, just impressed by this amazing team of people. Um, and, and we, we, we offset, you know, uh, everybody gets a little Starfleet personnel file. Um, and people, maybe people have never, not necessarily, um, knew were associated with Star Trek too, like, like uh, Judy Elkins, who was just very, very generous. Uh, she worked at ILM. She's responsible for the lasers for the, for the, for the, you know, the, 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 the phasers and so on. And um, she went on to have a, a really important career in Star Trek, uh, even becoming a visual effects supervisor on deep space nine. But um, she contributed a lot to some of our favorite early, you know, ILM, uh, movies and just she really walked us through uh you know how do you do that scene where the reliant is burning into the enterprise you know how do you how how was that done um and so to have her and ken explain that to us then we explain that to to fellow fans we think hopefully fans will love it i really love that approach to how you guys did this with just basically coming into it as if it's like a fresh thing never before discussed uh, that's a really smart way to do a biography and i'm really excited even more now <laughs> to check this book out in hand uh, but I got to ask you guys, I mean, you kind of just told us a little bit about it, but, you know, you found a lot of these old resources that probably nobody has ever seen before. What was it like for you as fans to come upon this stuff and be reading it and being like, you know, we're the first ones to ever find out this information like that. That's got to be the coolest thing in the world. Oh, I tell you, when you see when we, we were able, we we, we had uh, about 15 years ago, uh, Nicholas Meyer was very generous and gave us access to his um, uh, to scanning his uh, materials at uh, wow. at the University of Iowa Library, where he has a really wonder anybody who's interested in, in n- any of Nick Meyer's films, because uh, he of course did a lot of great work beyond Star Trek, uh, Day After, I mean, just amazing stuff, and even things that aren't film necessarily film related, but more his books, you know, his 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 uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes books and things like that. The University of Iowa has a, just a beautiful collection of, of his materials. Um, you know, when we saw those, there was a lot of contact sheets. So for people, people aren't familiar with what those are. Um, they're little tiny 
like you know images and and what what happens is the the studio or the the actor or whoever it is gets you know they put these contact sheets and they're like i you know yes that's a good picture not such a great picture but in there are like pictures you're like what 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 is this you know what what is this photo you know like for example the pictures of the con baby on set um and 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 so you're like oh my gosh so uh, there was a lot of that even 15 years ago but then when paramount opened its vaults to us and we got to see the photos i mean we were really excited they had photos of them filming the genesis explosion which was done in an auditorium and they had those photos and uh we had never seen those um and uh also they had photos of the premiere and and some of those are in here so you you'll see uh Merrick Buttrick at the premiere and 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 the premiere with fans like him handing out stuff to fans and just and and to find out like Denise Sakuda was at the premiere uh of of uh of of Mike and Denise Sakuda fame um and have it's a photo of her and then now we didn't include that in the book but uh you know uh to see things like that as fans to see fellow fans all the 82 fans you know 1982 fans there is just so much there. Um, one of the great pictures in the book that we loved that's in there, there's a couple. One is you see them bring, bringing the sand in to film SETI Alpha because it was all real sand, right? So you see what it looks like. We, we walk you through how that set was built. And you see the wood underneath it and the almost like Tyvex-like material that's on top of it um, for them to walk on. Uh, and then the wood that's placed on top of that, and then the the, the dirt that's being you know you see the, the the construction you know team bringing that dirt in. Um, and then what one of our favorite photos uh, is the um, you'll see the photos of uh, the outside of the bridge because the bridge is literally a round encapsulated set, and it looks almost like a UFO on on the set. Um, and uh, it, it, you could see where it was modular and they could take away pieces of it and film. And you could just see what a, what a challenge filming on that set had to be. Um, and the constant tinkering with moving pieces of it to be able to film the way that they needed to film. Uh, so all that's in there. And those are all photos we don't think um, have been seen before outside of, you know, Paramount. All right. Well, I think I got to ask you guys now because you kind of said this a few times. Uh, the con baby. Now, I don't want to give away everything here, but I did plan on ask you guys about something that maybe this is connected to, because uh, I've heard a story about Savick in the movies and some things that happened that didn't happen to her, and that includes not just Wrath of Khan, but things that would have happened in Star Trek Four, things that could have happened in Star Trek Six. Uh, so, as Star Trek experts, and also relating this here back to Wrath of Khan, um, can you kind of flex a little bit, my fans here, and talk to me about what you guys know about Savick that a lot of us might not know? Well, Savick started as a uh, was in er, early drafts of this a script it was actually created um, uh, by Jack Sowers and um, but very different. Uh, Savick was a uh, a male Vulcan um, and uh, pretty Spock like, uh, except he was a full Vulcan. Um, and uh, he plays uh, he is sort of Kirk's in the in the in the first version of the script. Um, he is Kirk's kind of, you know, Spock is, is killed very early in the very first version of it. Um, basically the reliant fight that happens in the movie as we know it is where Spock dies in the original version of the script. And, uh, and then really after that, it's, it's, it's Savick. 
um, and Savick and Kirk together with one of them. Um, very different story, though. Uh, Khan, they go out into the desert. Uh, uh, Khan is uh, Khan. His wife is alive. I mean, there's a lot of differences in in it. There's a there's a one on one fight between uh, Kirk and Khan, um, uh, which carries all the way through. By the way, until even a Nicholas Meyer version, there is a one on one fight with Kirk with Khan. Uh, but the, Nick wisely edits edits that out of his uh, later scripts. Um, because then we get the con screen, which is great. Um, but, uh, there's, uh, there's, a. I I mean, Kirk is brought to trial by David. He's going to be executed by the rebels who are fighting against Khan has kind of taken over star parts of Starfleet. I mean, it's very Terrell and parts of Starfleet and they, and they're going to use this Genesis device as a bomb to start wars and, David is leading this rebellion against it. And it's a very different, very different story. So Savick starts out very, very different. Um, uh, not just because of the gender, but because much more like a, uh, 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 what we would think of full, what, what Colin R. Spock would have looked like, right? Um, then Spock, uh, Savick gets changed to, to a female um, by um, Samuel Peoples' version of the script. Which is just there's no con in there. It's a completely different. Just he went off on a diff, totally different uh, track on um, two two aliens and, um, but they kept a certain elements of each of these uh, as as Nick Meyer sort of pieced together really his own his really his script, and um, and and Savick was one of them. So that sort of half Romulan half Vulcan that that that's coming in like in the people's version of of, of things. Um, this, the character of Savick was meant to re- always meant to replace Spock. Spock was not coming back for Star Trek three, never was going to come back for Star Trek three. Um, only came back as things progressed and, uh, they realized, can you do Star Trek without Spock? Um, um, uh, and, uh, also the changing of the casting, I think affected that a little bit too, the, the need to change the casting of it. Um, but yes, yeah, Savick was in Star Trek four, uh, while well, she was going to become pregnant in three, you would not know that though, till four, um, she was going to, uh, that's why she stayed behind in four. So that is scripted, uh, by Harv Bennett and it was filmed. Uh, so that, that exists. Um, uh, with, uh, with, of course, Spock, but they didn't want to tell Spock, uh, they didn't want to tell Spock that because of him going through his readjustment period. Um, and so she stayed behind to be with Amanda. And, uh, therefore they would have had to, had they kept that in the movie, they would have had to brought Savick back. I mean, she, how do you not deal with Spock's baby? I mean, that would have been a huge thing that needed to be dealt with in Star Trek five, right? Um, now they did bring Savick back for Star Trek six, but they renamed her <laughs> Valeris. Um, that was originally Savick. Um, and two things kind of happened there. One was, um, uh, Gene Roddenberry was not happy with that idea of, of one of the main characters being the saboteur. Um, and, and at that point, a beloved character. Uh, but really more the reason was, um, they could not get Kirstie Alley, who, by the way, always wanted to do it. Uh, we got to chat a little bit with her uh, before she passed away. Um, she a- always wanted to do Savick in every version. Uh, she wanted to do it in Star Trek Three. She wanted to do it 
when uh, they were going to have her on as kind of like a joke with Kelsey Grammer um, uh, in the episode of Next Gen where he plays uh, Captain Bateman. Um, that was supposed to be Savick standing next to him. Uh, and she wanted to play him and star uh, her in Star Trek uh, six. Uh, it was always just a function of uh, scheduling and or other practical matters that stopped that. And I, and I think uh, Nick Meyer did not want to um, recast uh, Savick again. Um, and so uh, that's where they created the character of Valeris from. So, um, you know, and Savick of course has a life in the comics. Um where they bring back Zahn. Um, Zahn and her are betrothed. So the Zahn character, who was meant to be the replacement of Spock in the motion picture, is the betrothed of Savick, who was meant to be the replacement of Spock in Star Trek Two. So that was kind of clever. Uh, DC Comics did that. So um, really fascinating character. Um, but re- really always meant to be, um, to, to keep the three, the three elements of logic, emotion, and the balancer between those, right? McCoy's the emotion, Spock is the logic, and Kirk is the balancer who incorporates both of those. And they knew that that was part of the special sauce of the original Star Trek. And uh, and and they wanted to keep that, and that's what Savick's function was. I know you guys probably cover this in the book as well, because there's so much awesome stuff in there. But I'm just curious if you guys address the Chekhov-Khan meeting that happens early in the film. Yes, yes, uh, we do. Uh, the The reality is they didn't, think about that um and uh but i think that uh, there's other reasons though too uh one is that uh walter koenig kind of had the reputation right of being the the screamer right he was he had such a great visit he he was really good it's not meant that it's meant to be for and that's not an easy thing to do right i think i think crying and giving a believable scream uh, these types of things are not easy for actors to do. And and I think they realized that they wanted Koenig. The other thing is, uh, it, it's also, the, the other reality is, it's just a whole, the, the, the final script is very much a patchwork of all the other scripts, even though it's an original script. I mean, Nick Meyer wrote Star Trek II as we know it, but it is pieced together from Jack B. Soward's Samuel Peoples, all these other iterations. So one of the very early versions of the script, well, I should say this, all the versions of the script had Chekhov with Terrell. It didn't always have that Terrell and, che- Terrell and Chekhov met Khan. And that's really why Chekhov was with Terrell. It was just this carryover. They just kept that element throughout all these different versions. Um, the other, of course, the reality of it is Khan, Chekhov was on the Enterprise. He was just in the lower decks. Uh, and Walter Koenig has the joke of, you know, he was in the bathroom or something, uh, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But um, but you can see, um, like the last time we see Chekhov, uh, McCoy comes and checks on him, you know, after the eel has been removed from him. Um, but you can see in the Genesis cave, um, they use close up shots. But when you look at the wide shots, you can see. Chekhov is right there. He's kind of just like off to the side. Um, I think we show that. Yeah, we show that in there. That's one of the neat little, because that always is one of the things that, the two big things with Chekhov and the, 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 I think Wrath of Khan is uh, how did Khan know who he was? And the other thing is, why did everybody leave him in the cave by himself as he's 
bleeding out from his ear and in, and in shock. And that isn't. He is actually in the cave scene. Um, he is in the he's in the eat the Garden of Eden section mm-hmm. of. It. He is with them. Uh, he's off to the side. And in fact, in one of the sequences, as 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 McCoy gets up and goes over to check on him as he's sort of laying off to the side, Savick and David have a little conversation, and Savick calls him a bastard in the in the script. He says, "Oh, you're you're, you're so you're a bastard, right? I mean, you're you're his kid." but they weren't married. And he's like, you know, a better way of saying that, <laughs> that sort of, they have a little discussion with Cause there was very much meant to be a romance between the two of them. And all of that kind of got little moments that hinted at it. And all of that got taken out. And you could really, you could really see that in uh, those photos and that the contact sheets. Um, you can see that um, the way um, uh, Kirstie Alley and Merrick Buttrick were on set. You can see that um, as well. And then um if you see the key art for um, Wrath of Khan, there's that image of David with a knife at Kirk's throat. So that's explained as well in the book because that was cut. Yeah, we tried to explain as many of the sort of mysteries and, the, you know, we, we can't we can't tell you what the Khan glove means because the only one who knows that won't, won't ever tell people what it means. Um, uh, but we tried to solve the other mis- uh, other production mysteries. Uh, that's really cool. I mean, yeah, you guys really did some serious detective work here. And uh, one last time, John, if you want to hold, hold up the book as well, that'd be awesome. But uh, how can folks find this book? Where can they find it? And um, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So how can folks pick up Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan? Well, it is uh, it is available for anybody who's interested. Uh, it's uh, available for pre-order now, really anywhere uh, and anywhere and everywhere. It's uh, uh, published by Titan Books. So um, and it's an official Paramount release. Uh, uh, so you can get it at Amazon, at, um, Barnes and Noble, um, through previews. If you get your books at the comic store, um, there's also a, uh, a Kindle, you know, a digital version of it. If you wanted a more digital, uh, a version rather than a, than a hard copy of it. Um, about a hundred lucky fans got an early copy at San Diego Comic-Con. Um, but it's coming out September 5th. Uh, to help celebrate Star Trek right around Star Trek Day, um, and uh, we 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 had hoped to have it out last year for the 40th, um, but um, there was a lot of challenges with the pandemic, with doing research. Obviously, a lot of libraries were closed. Um, it 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 uh, it uh, besides all the other tragedies uh, with it, it uh, made travel and so on and obviously a little more difficult. So. Um, uh, got the book got pushed back a little bit uh, because of that, but uh, we're we're thrilled. That finally, uh, the book actually took longer to write than the movie took to make. I'm not surprised by that. Well, partially, you know, everything's scattered, right? Um, some of the yeah. some of the materials are in the hands of fans. Uh, some have been lost to time. Um, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons we really believe in in what uh, Titan is doing and. Uh, in going back to the early Star Trek movies and giving them a sort of new making ofs because we're losing one of the, 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 I mean, while we wrote this book, Nichelle Nichols passed away and um, Kirstie Alley passed away. And we, we, we lost so many people before there's nobody in the film. You know, one of the people that's on the film crew is Kathy Colton who fans of uh, of um, David Lynch and Twin Peaks know she's the log lady, uh, but she plays a very important role in the, on the camera crew of Star Trek II. 
Um, and, uh, you know, she passed away a few years ago to be able to have talked to her, um, about her memories of this, you know, because usually when people talk to Kathy Colton, it's about Twin Peaks. It's about David Lynch. It's about her film, you know, her, her career, that direction. Um, and so, uh, we, we're losing so many people who made these films 40 and, and 30 years ago, uh, that we really wanted to, to be a tribute to them. And we did make the book a tribute to those who, who've been, who, who we've lost, uh, all the great actors. Uh, so many of the actors are gone. B.B. Beach and, and Paul Winfield and, 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 and Mary Buttrick and, uh, Ricardo Montalban and Leonard Nimoy and James Doohan, Michelle Nichols. I mean, just so many of the people that you would, you recognize who it would have been fascinating to get their view on it 40 years later, you know? Um, so uh, we, we like this idea that, they, they, you know, they've done books on the motion picture and, and Titan and uh, uh, First Contact and things like that. So we're glad they're going back. And some of these films never got making a book. Star Trek three never got a making a book. Star Trek four never got a making a book. Uh, five, William Shatner had a kind of a personal diary sort of making of book. Um, uh, but Star Trek six never had a making a book. So, so you know, I, I think from the the fan that the nice thing about books, I think, versus say Blu-ray features or whatever, um, is that you can really study the images, you know, in the book. And that's why, you know, with these coffee table books. So there's a lot of great pictures. Just so many we're excited for fans to see. Even one of BBB shit, alternate haircuts. I mean, just things like that. That's just like, when I saw that, I got so excited. Uh, that yeah, stuff. We're, so. we're going to make them buy the book. They want to learn more about that stuff. Uh, <laughs> can't give away everything here today, John and Maria. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, again, for folks who want to follow you guys also, is there a way that they can keep up the tabs of what you guys are doing? Sure. Uh, you can follow us just on Facebook. If you look for uh, just John Tenuto, uh, you'll see the cover of the book. It's easy. Uh, and we, we share that. It's our, we, we talk about different uh, projects we're doing or uh, books we're working on, things like that. Right, awesome. Well, thank you guys so much today for coming by and telling us about the book. I'm very excited to get into my hands as well, because it seems like, you know, it's in the number one here. It's being written by two real serious hardcore fans. And also the fact that you guys like you really did your homework with this. So uh, I'm very, very excited to see what new stuff you guys have dug up, because today was a little sneak preview. Seeing what's actually in that book, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. So uh, thank you guys again for coming by. And thank you for doing all that hard work, putting this thing together. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. We loved it. Thanks. And that was our chat with John and Maria Jose Tenuto talking all about their brand new Star Trek Wrath of Khan book. And if you guys want to pick it up, once again, there will be links for it in the show notes of this episode. And I highly urge you guys to check this out. After we were done recording, they even showed me a few other things we didn't talk about on air. And I got to tell you guys, like, wow, I'm I'm legitimately blown away. I know you're going to be blown away, too, because some of the stuff is just outrageous what they found. I can't believe it. I'm, I can't give you guys spoilers. It's as simple as that, but yeah, I wish I could. So definitely go ahead, check out Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, the making of the classic film by John and Maria Jose Tenuto. Now, as for this show, I wasn't actually expecting to do a show in the middle of the summer, this late in the summer especially, because I was on my usual summer break. But just to let you guys know, new episodes will be coming soon this September as well. I don't quite know what day yet they're going to be launching, but they will be back at some point. I've already got a bunch done, and I should let you guys know that all the interviews that you're going to be seeing were done before the SAG after strike. So that really affects people primarily in the entertainment industry, not so much some of the other guests I'm going to have on this season. And it kind of worked out the way that I was having a bunch of folks outside of just the usual actors and writers. But yeah, there are some actors this time around who are going to be talking to. And all of those, once again, were done before any of the strikes were happening in Hollywood. 
And if you want to learn more about the strike, by the way, I recommend you guys check out my last episode here of Trek Untold, which was all about it from a Star Trek perspective. We talked with some former guests like Armin Shimmerman, Kitty Swink, Phil Morris, Tim Lunavus, Bertilla Damas, and Lisa Klink. And this is an episode that really breaks everything down for you and puts it all into perspective about why the strike is happening, what they're fighting for, and why it actually does matter to you, not just because of the fact that you're not going to have some new shows or movies for a little while. It's because it goes way deeper than that and is truly about fighting for the rights of every working class person. You might not believe me when I say that, but it's the honest truth, so please check that episode out. Now, before I beam out of here and go back to my away mission on Ryza, I just want to make sure you guys are reminded to check me out at Trek Untold on all different social media platforms, including Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter or X or who knows what it's going to be called whenever you're watching this now. And of course, please consider supporting Trek Untold on patreon.com slash trekuntold. Your contributions mean a world to me and help keep this show going. So any way you can actively support the show, please consider doing so. And once again, if you're listening to the show on any of the different podcast platforms out there or you're watching it on YouTube, please leave a rating, a review, a comment, a thumbs up, a heart, whatever you can do to interact with it and help people find this when they're looking for a new Star Trek podcast to check out for themselves. So until next time, I'm Matthew. This has been Trek Untold. We'll see you guys here next time. And as I always say, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms. Is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.